0: So, hi guys, welcome to the Macros Bodybuilding and Powerlifting Podcast. I'm here with Eric Helms from 3D Muscle Journey. Very happy to have him here today. And I'm sure if you know me, you know who Eric Helms is, you know 3D Muscle Journey, but I still want to introduce him in case we do have any stragglers who aren't completely sure and you uh, have been living kind of in the middle of nowhere, effectively. So, Eric Helms is a trainer, has been a trainer, sorry, since early 2000s, so he's a coach, and now he's working for 3D Muscle Journey, who specialise in kind of high-level and elite powerlifters and bodybuilders, so very knowledgeable in that area, and that's why we have these guys on the podcast. He's an athlete, so a pro bodybuilder, and uh, I'm hoping he's going to get on stage fairly soon. I'm expecting big things from Eric, it's been a long time since you've been on the stage, uh, Shit, <laughs> powerlifter <laughs> and olympic lifting and actually just to go on a slight tangent i really look up to eric personally as a bodybuilder because i feel like there's similarities between mine and eric's physique and so i definitely look at areas of kind of eric's bone structure and things like that and it's nice to compare against someone who i feel is similar so not that 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 might be putting t- too little credit towards credit uh, eric's physique because i don't think mine's amazing but uh, I'm i'm getting there So finally, also an educator, so got a BS in fitness and wellness, a second master's in sports nutrition, an MS in exercise science, and is currently doing your PhD uh, in strength and conditioning, with published articles in really credible sources, and has taught undergrad and grads, and talks internationally, so came over to the UK recently, and I got to meet him personally, which was amazing, at the Shredded by Science seminar, uh, which was just yeah, out of this world, two days, amazing, and uh, yeah, is the author of the Muscle and Strength Pyramids, well, co-author with Andrea and, um, Andy. For, yeah, forget, forgetting the name, I should remember it's two A's, it's you, easy, and I you, met Andy as well.
1: Yeah, you forgot your countryman, come on, man.
0: Yeah. <laughs> he's all the way in, uh, he's, well, he's all over the world, but Asia for yeah, the he, most part. He's
1: mostly in Japan, but he, he travels, that's for sure, yeah, man. Well, so, thank you, I'm so happy to be here.
0: Great. Yeah, and hopefully I didn't kind of miss anything there. Is there anything you want to add? Olympic lifting as well, I should have said. You've been doing, dabbling in
1: Olympic lifting. Eh, you not know, so like that's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, with uh, with my my hip impingement, which lim- limits my ability to do it, and the fact that I'm just not good at it, It's uh, I don't do that that much Yeah, mm-hmm. so... I, I typically, when I when I talk to people and they ask me about my own personal athletic endeavors, I say I'm a bodybuilder, powerlifter, and I have occasionally pretended to be an Olympic lifter. So, so. but thank you. No, that that's that's a very generous introduction, and I'm happy to be here. Uh, and I had the pleasure of meeting you, along with uh, a lot of other folks, when we came over to the UK. And it was a great time.
0: Well, yeah, I know everyone massively enjoyed that. And Luke Johnson of Shredded by Science throws kind of the best seminars. So. Uh, I think that's the best one I've been to as well, That he's thrown just the organization of it with all the presenters. You all guys had your individual topics. It was amazing. And anyone who missed out on it, missed out on something really special. So if there's another one, they need to come to it because yeah, you guys really rock it.
1: Yeah. Luke is the man. A big shout out to SBS, man. That's some great people.
0: Cool. So I just also wanted to note that I've actually been following 3DMJ and the guy since I think it was like 2011. So Mm. it's, it tremendously helped me as a bodybuilder because I really only saw it as kind of like strict, rigid meals, all of these things. And that was the biggest part for me was as a bodybuilder, when you first get into it, you love the training. That's the easy part, kind of. You love that. And it becomes a harder part as you advance, but the initial bit, you're not not motivated for that. But the dieting side I found really hard. So finding kind of you guys spreading that nutrition, information about flexible dieting, things like that, kind of completely changed the game for me and i don't think i'd be here talking to you. i wouldn't be here talking to you right now if i hadn't found your information back then because i wouldn't be in the sport myself right now because i didn't find mm-hmm. it sustainable back then so yeah i just want to say a big thanks for that initially and i guess that was through matt ogus who you initially kind of he helped you guys build a bit of a social following in a sense
1: oh yeah i mean it's it, it was funny i remember when i still remember the the like the initial phone call back in the day we had a a manageable enough number of clients to where every time we get an inquiry, we'd just give them a you know a call on the phone, talk to them, and you know see if they're interested. Um, we can't do that today, which is you know I guess a good problem to have. But um, yeah, I think I called him in probably the end of two thousand ten, if I have my timeline right, chatted to, to him on the phone, and then I remember he'd given me one of his first updates, you know via email, and he was like, "Hey, do you mind if I use this also as my my YouTube vlog?" And I was like. In my head, I was like, "What, you know?" (laughs) What is this? Yeah, I was like, "Yeah, whatever, man. Sure, kid, you know." And um, and then I started, you know, I'd be looking at his videos, and it took me like a few weeks, but I looked down and I noticed there were, I mean, this is 2011, so it wasn't YouTube wasn't as huge, but there were thousands of views on his video. It's like, what is this, you know? So um, anyway, I uh, towards the end, he he was starting to get, uh, you know, he made some fantastic progress. And uh, we decided that, you know, he lived in the same city as I did, so it was very easy. We'd, mm-hmm. you know, get together and do a few Q&As in, in uh, 2011, 2012, and even uh, 2013 uh, when I worked with him via distance. Uh, well, it's always via distance, but I, yeah. I lived in New Zealand at that point. Um, yeah, so he, he was, uh, he, he uh, promoted the hell out of us and also the Muscle and Strength Pyramids recently. And, uh, you know, Matt's I, I can't tell you how many people have told me. Uh, they, you know, they found us through Matt Ogus, so it's it's awesome that he, you know he's such a visible figure, and I think he crosses a lot of uh, demographics, mm-hmm. and um, it's it's cool that he is able to expose people to a lot of, you know, good principles, and uh, you know, because uh, I think people, some of the people who do like lifestyle marketing, they do it in a way that makes it all look like you know rainbows and gumdrops, and yeah. it's all about them, but I think he, he's always done it in a way to get people. Um, useful information if mm-hmm. they if they want to seek that out, which I think is awesome. So yeah, yeah. big big shout out to Matt Ogus if he's listening. And uh, definitely, it 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 created like logistical problems for us with how much <laughs> exposure we got. We had to create our Skype program. We had to start and then cancel a waiting list because it got too big. We had to figure out different ways of doing intakes. We had an admin assistant eventually. So it was uh yeah, I think it it, it gave us some uh, a big leap in exposure, and we've had we've had that a few times since you know with. Mm-hmm. Certain clients who happen to have a pretty substantial following um, who do well under us and, and decide to spread the good word. So that's always, always greatly appreciated.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact is, it you could have been, if you were an awful kind of coaching company, you were awful, you didn't know your stuff, then you wouldn't have, Kind of exposed like you did. Like Matt could have shared your stuff, and it would have got kind of beaten down, or you'd hope it might have, because there is some bad information out there, and there are some bad coaches that do get bigged up and spread. But yes, yeah, definitely credit to you guys for continually staying on top of your game and providing. Now, what I actually ended up doing is. Not no discredit to Ogus and uh, his channel, but I kind of stopped watching that, and now it's your channel I watch, and that's the information I want as a as a coach and practitioner in the field. That's more kind of useful for me. So yeah, mm. I it's him and uh, Ian McCarthy who has now come back on the scene were the first two people who really influenced me in terms of kind of because I was young at that stage and kind of YouTube was great place for me. I thought to get information. Um, and now it has actually become like a useful resource, like your YouTube channel, which I would highly recommend to anyone watching. Um, great place to go and visit.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's it's cool to see how the landscape's changed over time. And um, and yeah, it, it, there's a lot of options out there. Like you said, you know, it's a double edged sword. The internet always. There's a lot of craft. There's a lot of good. Um, but hopefully, people are in developing the critical thinking to find the good stuff. Yeah, I mean, sure.
0: it's exploded. The, actual, like the fact there's so many online coaches now, like when uh, I remember watching the videos back then with August and him talking about him having a coach and I was, how is that even a thing? And I think yeah. you guys were some of the first who did it. And now there's loads. I mean, I've now got a career in it, which seems crazy to me. Um, but yeah, it's amazing. So. Yeah, I mean,
1: I remember when we first were starting up in 2009, we would look around for, okay, what should we, what should we be charging, what's the industry standard, like what are the people doing, and we had two places to look, Dr. Joe and Lane, and that was, mm-hmm. that, you know, people who were who were doing online coaching for for natural bodybuilders, you know, and uh, now, well, I guess a good, a good thing is, if you remember when I asked the audience when I was presenting in, in London, I was like, okay, how many, how many people are coaches or want to be coaches and who want to work with competitive physique athletes, and I'm expecting... 20 hands to go up Mm -hmm. and there's 200 ish people in the room and half the hands go up and i was like holy shit you know like it's 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 just it's definitely changed a lot which is cool
0: and i guess even just on a slight tangent is that the genie i didn't see it exactly but that app that you've been involved with now there's apps that do an element of coaching as well which is incredible it's actually insane
1: Yeah, so Avatar Nutrition, you know, Lane started that up. I think was was probably the first one on the scene mm-hmm. um, that that you know prescribes and changes macros. And uh, yeah, we just myself along with some of the folks from Citadel Nutrition, um, as well as a couple uh, geniuses from Georgia Tech, Obi and uh, and uh, Keith uh, developed an app that that does a similar thing. It, it it figures out your what a good baseline macronutrient level is for your goals, and then adjusts from there. and uh, you know, I was motivated to get behind that because there are so many people who are out there calling themselves macro coaches. Oh. Which, when someone calls themselves a macro coach, it makes me want to stab myself in the <laughs> eye with with a hot poker, um, because those two words don't go to unless you're actually sitting there talking to like a banana, like all right, carbohydrate, <laughs> you can do this. You're going to refuel this guy's glycogen. You know, like uh, how do you feel about it? And when I when I, when I peel you, do you want me to break you down the center or you know? So, like, you know, that's not coaching. That's Mm -hmm. that's spitting out something that a website can do. And um, while, of course, it is important to be able to, you know, give somebody useful nutrition education and recommendations. You know, truly, what we're doing is interacting with people and building relationships. So, I um, I think people need to get a little bit away from the idea that all uh, a good coach does is, you know, give you a training split Mm -hmm. and three numbers because that's should be a very minor part of of your value
0: yeah i mean even i initially remember when i first started and i was doing it just by email correspondence and that wasn't even enough i needed and i found you guys were doing the videos and that initially made me change my way of coaching that was a game changer because they might have put in a certain number of macros but in reality they talked through the video and they're like yeah don't i kind of was accurate but not really and this happened and yeah, the, the element of coaching online is you, yeah, you have to get that coaching element. The coaching element is like you always talk about. It's not the numbers that are most important things. It isn't necessarily the science in that background. It's to be able to talk to people and understand them and talk them through the process and what is actually required of them.
1: Yeah, I remember in 2000, like I said, we used to do these phone calls with our initial clients, right? Oh, or okay. initial inquiries, rather. So I would say all the way through 2000, Maybe mid 2012. Uh, Now we kept doing it through 2011. That's that's when we basically stopped. But anyway, all the way through then, I always felt like I had to defend the fact that we were an online coaching service. That we had to emphasize the pros and cons, like hey, you know, online, you know, in person's great, but you're limited to who's in your area. They may or may not be good. Um, You know, I get a lot as an online coach. I get to see a lot more people from various backgrounds. You know. And yeah, sure, I, That we were missing all these human intera- interaction things. But these days, I don't even have to explain myself or defend it because with you know, Skype mm-hmm. video recordings, um, being able to easily send pictures back and forth, um, you know, and, and, and just the, the things you can do with technology these days if you're creative, it's, um, there's so little you're missing out on. Yeah. And um, especially when you're working with a population like we do that for the most part knows how to lift. Mm-hmm. You know, and doesn't doesn't need that kind of in person PT, um, you know, instruction. I mean, sometimes it's a little less efficient to teach someone how to pose. Yeah. Um, but um, but that that's a pretty minor con compared to the pros and cons list that I think were around in two thousand nine, two
0: thousand ten. Yeah, definitely. And I think you touched on a good point in that the online coaching isn't for new people. You don't really tend to get that sort of population necessarily inquiring so much as well. It's definitely for yep. those who want that step above. Um, so yeah without getting too kind of off topic into that but that was really fun I did want to get into a question that I'm interested to hear what you're doing um, in terms of Christmas that's coming up so in terms of your kind of training your nutrition is that changing at mm. all according to Christmas are you going on a kind of a Christmas a mass uh, or are you kind of taking time to relax and just let things go I know you don't kind of Religiously track your numbers anymore. You're kind of into the more intuitive style of eating. How's that going?
1: Oh, it goes well. So, yeah, I I look at my body weight and then I make sure I get enough protein in, and then I basically just uh, regulate how full I am at meals based on whether I'm gaining too fast, too slow. Um, And, you know, during the holidays, so a beautiful thing about living in the southern hemisphere in New Zealand is that Christmas is typically when we're on the beach. Yeah. So, um, I know everyone in London right now is groaning and like you son of a bitch. You know, but um, but it, no, it's, it's beautiful out. We just had our first day on the beach. I want to say this weekend nice. with some friends. Um, and I hope you know burn the shit out of myself. One downside is we have like a five minute time to burn in New Zealand where there's no ozone, so it's not all fun and games. It's fun and games and skin cancer, but <laughs> um, but nonetheless, uh, we I, we really enjoy Christmas. Um, we tend to spend it with with friends here because you know our family uh isn't in this country um so we normally kind of do some kind of you know holiday excursion where we you know go to a cool beachy area in one of the you know islands or a certain nice. part of new zealand and um yeah, I try to get all, all my training in i don't i cause I enjoy training like people. Yeah. You know, when you when you go on holiday, you do things you like. So I normally try to get in training sessions. That may mean also, like if we're going to a remote area, I'll cram a bunch of sessions in before and then after, or uh, program myself so my deload falls on that day. Cool. And then I uh, I still just try to eat until I don't want to, or or eating a little until I'm full if I'm having trouble gaining weight, or just holding back a little bit if I'm getting a little fluffy, and um, and try to keep my protein up. So it doesn't change a whole lot for me really, and I think that's. One of the benefits to having gotten to the place of uh, flexibility where I'm at, but where I can still uh, do what I think is optimal for my my goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no,
0: I think that's a really that's a an adult approach, a mature approach, not and one that is kind of obviously informed. Because I think a lot of people see Christmas as like a time to just either binge or they get anxious about it. Where in reality, what you've basically said is it, it's just another day and it's just a time where it's kind of an excuse to be with family and friends and maybe relax a little bit more but not a time yep. that it's no different really to any other time. So, yeah, I'm yep. glad you said that.
1: Uh, for, you know, for some people, if they have been coming off a diet or from the middle of a diet or if they are not, because I, I, I paint a nice pretty picture but the reality is is that it took me, you know, five to seven years of doing it differently to get to this point. So... You know, when I always I like to throw this caveat in when I talk about it like intuitive eating. As it, it may take years to get to that point, um, hopefully less if you're doing it in kind of a structured way. But yeah, I mean, there have been years where I was restricted enough before Christmas to where Christmas was like, oh, excuse to eat, you know, and then, uh, or I'm, you know, dieting and I'm worried about it and I'm bringing a scale to Christmas dinner and trying to explain to my family why I'm not eating with them and uh, struggling to find you know, an an appropriate kind of level of balance for what I was doing at the time. So, I I can totally understand and something we deal with clients all the time. Um, But, yeah, I mean, this is a good place to get to if you're, you know, deep in off-season and over a year away from thinking about dieting. So, like I am, but, yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I think even just the simplicity of if you are dieting or if you are kind of, yeah, conscious about that sort of thing, treating it as a deload, maybe a period of time you can have a diet break and... Mm -hmm. Periodizing those things in can be really help, helpful in those sort of situations. So, on a related topic, what's your favorite? Actually, what do they eat in New Zealand? What's a Christmas dinner for a New Zealander? Well, that's probably not yeah, what yeah. you call you guys.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we're—I'm uh, an American who's living in New Zealand, yeah. and uh, you know, one day we're, we're, we're working on our application for residency, and maybe one day we'll get uh, you know dual citizenship. So maybe one day I'll be able to, to claim Kiwi officially. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, I think you know for us because uh we are always eating with our Amer- like american friends and this is actually kind of like a smorgasbord of cultures uh who are doing their uh, like phd's or masters okay. here yeah like there's uh we've got a, a couple uh american couple who's are our, our best friends here and then a handful of people from the uk canada uh, of course kiwis as well mm-hmm. um and I think it's all pretty similar as far as what, what people do for Christmas. You know, they they still have like Christmas hams or big turkeys or chickens, and then um, you know, kind of all all the food you, you might expect. Um, we typically do a big potluck style thing, and uh, yeah, and just eat and chill and hang and drink.
0: Nice. Yeah. And what's on your Christmas list this year? What's Santa, what you hope? What have you asked for from Santa? <laughs>
1: Yes, I'm, I'm. Gifts aren't like a thing that I really. I don't know, man. I, uh, I don't really focus much on that side of it. I, normally, what my wife and I do is we kind of go on some kind of mutual trip. That's like a, a nice thing for ourselves. So we're going to try to do a little a little holiday trip for for Christmas as a gift to ourselves. You're so, so
0: mature. You're definitely over thirty. That's why you don't want. Any yeah, other, like, exactly. Toys.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm 33. I've been married for 11 years. So we have the same bank account. Like get, getting gifts. Is, <laughs> So, oh, I can see that it came out of the couch, you know. So it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm adulting. It's lame. I know.
0: Full on adulting. No, I agree. Yeah. I, it's you do appreciate experiences and and the, the, like little holidays and things like that so much more. And yeah, Christmas. I was, I was hoping you were going to come out with something hilarious that you just random present that you might want. But
1: uh... I could lie. I mean, I can <laughs> make a very, very convincing and funny lie if you'd like. So, so you want like but,
0: uh, an ab trainer or something? That's that's what you want. That's the special gift.
1: Yeah, I'm looking for the uh, the frog trainer. I don't know if you've seen that, where you get in the frog position and you have to push yourself up. I've heard it has really good muscle activation. That's 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 the one.
0: Frog pumps, maybe. But... Frog frog, frog pump. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um. So right. So the the juicy bit of this conversation I wanted to get into. Well, it might be juicy. It might be completely dull because you might tell me that nothing is going to change, but. <laughs> kind of any changes or additions, anything big, small, anything you've kind of in the last few years come across with your own experience with your clients and things like that that you'd make to the Natural Body Building recommendations paper you kind of published in two thousand and fourteen. Because I know you spoke, we we said you spoke to Alan Aragon and there was a supplement recommendation yep. that he might include within there now.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that that's that's a great question. Yeah, so. um so, do you want to just keep it to the nutrition paper? Because we wrote the, the training and the nutrition one in two different journals.
0: Love to go over both. Um, we can chart, start right. with training. Or start actually, with training. Or the start nutri- with nutrition. <laughs> Let's go nutrition because I started with supplementation. Okay. That's got a, that was in the okay. nutrition paper.
1: Cool. Yeah, I would say um, you know, there's been a real recent um, meta analysis on beta alanine that came out. And it basically, you know, the old cutoff was like the 60 to 240 second effort. Yeah. Um, And uh, now it's showing that, you know, 30 seconds and higher might be kind of where it's starting to give a, admittedly, small benefit. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you think about the tempos most people lift with, we're talking about a a rep lasting about three seconds on average, you know. So Mm -hmm. maybe for high rep training, it also depends on the movement, you know, like obviously like a curl is not going to last three seconds, you know, a full up and down on a squat might um, so you know beta alanine has definitely been something where I tend to not recommend it to powerlifters. Yeah. of course it 's a bodybuilding paper, so i it's it 's a lot lower on my list, and what it 's been climbing and what you you mentioned Alan Aragon talked about uh, in i guess that was on my Instagram when I interviewed him while we were in yeah, um, yeah, I interviewed him while we were in. Uh, Norway, and then put the full interview on our, our YouTube. He was talking about how um, citrulline malate is starting to show um, potential benefits for uh, strength athletes, bodybuilders, and body recomp, And I would totally agree with that. Um, so yeah, that that would probably change in our in our supplement recommendations. Um, you know, I would say things are just as murky in in the fields of. Um, Meal timing and spacing, you know, there's there's hits and misses and kind of the intermittent caloric restriction stuff mm-hmm. uh, and no one has yet really done solid work on refeeds in the way that we do them in the physique community typically, yeah. um, which I, I, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff to be done. So I, I, always, I still want to see people doing studies on one day, two day per week, three day per week refeeds instead of, you know, like five days at maintenance, two days heavy dieting mm-hmm. kind of, which is all that's the closest out there. Um, as far as nutrient timing, I think um, there's been more and more research in protein spread, yeah. Um, and admittedly, a lot of the same limitations are still there: that we're looking at not a whole lot of other nutrients, short-term studies, and um, and uh, you know, lack of realistic longitudinal training programs. But I, I would say that kind of the overall evidence probably points in the direction of you probably want to try to spread your your protein feedings over at least three meals per day if you want to. You know, uh, optimize things. And, um, you know, there's been some recent work where uh, basically showing the interaction of training with nutrition. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing a a full body workout versus an isolated muscle, um, you know, there's a a higher level of of protein you can ingest, which will elevate muscle protein synthesis, which is not surprising. It seems intuitive. Um, So, you know, I, I think people still need to think about their total protein intake per day and less about. Individual meals, in my opinion, and then figure out how to spread that out um, in order to get what's likely to be an optimal dose. Um, there's also a lot more research going into uh, the idea that has been around since the late 90s, uh, if, if, I, if I recall correctly, of taking in a slow digesting protein source before bed to try to offset uh, the potential uh, catabolism there. And it makes sense mechanistically, um, you know, just like all this stuff does. Um, but until they do a you know a protein matched resistance trained long term uh, you know study where they've got you know at least a couple months of people you know ingesting the same amount of protein but just timed differently so some uh, is over the overnight fast and they're training the same are we going to really know if that is something the body can compensate for or not or is it necessary or beneficial? Um, but at the at the moment I would say it's probably not a bad idea to get a slow digesting protein source before you go to bed. It's kind of one of those things where is there a significant cost to your life, life stress? No, yeah. probably not. You know, you're going to be home at nine, ten p.m. most days anyway. So why not have, you know, some meat or some dairy before you go to bed? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, that might be something we'd include. So citrulline malate, a little more fleshing out of the protein dosing. Um, protein overall, you know, that was my master's focus. I had a, a hypothesis that there would be stronger evidence than I found, uh, in my opinion. For lean body mass retention during a diet. Um, and while I think my systematic review showed that there were hintings in that direction, it was a very limited systematic review. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, soon we're going to have more data, not necessarily in a dieted state, but I'm working on a meta analysis uh, along with uh, Alan Aragon, Stu Phillips, Brad Schoenfeld, Menno Henselmans, and a, and a bunch of people from uh, Stu Phillips' lab who are doing the, the vast majority of the work where we're trying to get kind of the dose response of protein as mm-hmm. far as strength and, and muscle mass. I think we'll have a better better idea of what's a reasonable intake uh, there. Um, and I think while we don't have the highest quality or strength of ev- evidence to say, you know, higher protein intakes will guard against lean body mass losses during a diet, um, you know, that you'd need to take in more than when you're in, in a uh, surplus or maintenance, I do think there's strong enough evidence to suggest that satiety uh, and... The basically the sensation of wellness and sustainability of the diet might be higher with a, yeah. a higher protein intake, but not taking it so far that it's going to, you know, impinge on your your fat and carbohydrate. And that's what I found in my master's uh, study. Um, and uh, I would say there's a fair amount of evidence that also kind of agrees with that out there. So yeah, I, I think the protein recommendations would probably stay the same, but I would probably be less firm about the possibility of that actually helping with lean body mass retention directly through the mechanism proposed, but rather mm-hmm. through uh, making the diet more sustainable uh, and, and, and leaving you feeling less stressed throughout the process, which I, I do think could have a measurable impact on lean body mass retention.
0: Cool. No, yeah, I think the there's definitely been way more work coming out on, well, seemingly anyway, the MPS mm-hmm. type studies. And it's really interesting and it's kind of it does bring it all back to kind of the old school where kind of when if it fits your macros came in, it was like, well, you just hit your macros by the end of the day. And that was kind of like the extreme away from what was initially the extreme of like eat every two to three hours or something. Whereas now it's coming to the point of, okay, yeah, hitting your macros by the end of the day is most important. But if you can spread out your protein slightly better through the day, it's becoming more and more evident that that's probably gonna provide some sort of benefit for you. But I remember in the paper you said it's probably more important for muscle growth than it is for muscle retention. Is that still the case? Do you think?
1: You know, I, I'm not sure. I, I think I think a better way to look at it is that whether you're in a surplus or a deficit, um, the, the you know the the kinetics are the same. Like you know, you're you get a strong muscle protein synthesis dose from from taking protein in. And from a resistance training, I can augment the protein response. Uh, there's still a refractory period, and you know between meals, you are um, actually catabolizing you know proteins, and, and uh, you're going into a net negative protein balance. And the, the the height of those peaks and the depth of those valleys just change uh, deficit compared to surplus. So it's you know I I'd, I'd like to get a little away from strictly saying retention during dieting and gaining during a. Um, you know, a surplus because it it gets people back into that mindset that oh, I cannot gain muscle yeah. while I'm dieting. Uh, when in reality, you're probably gaining small amounts while you have higher body fat levels, and your deficit isn't large. And then it's you know much harder to do so, and you might be losing a little bit by the end. And the net change is a small loss of muscle over, like I say, a six month prep uh, for most people. Um, so the yeah, I, I I don't I don't think it changes either way. I think um, Whatever would result in the best growth response would probably res- also result in the best muscle retention. Yeah. Um, you, know, there are, are some things your body does when you go into a deficit. It makes your utilization of protein more efficient,, you know, which is a great indicator of saying, "Hey, I, I'm at a risk of losing muscle mass, so I'm going to need to do more with what I have." Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so, uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't think it necessarily um, would, would change either way, in my opinion.
0: And have you ever, on a related note, with your clients, have you ever had someone go kind of really want to push their protein high and seen benefit from that? Or even the other way, kind of bring it really low and actually retain muscle perfectly fine and like you can give them more carbs and they can train better or something like that?
1: Yeah, I, I have. And, um, you know, for the most part within the ranges that we are comfortable with as bodybuilders, which is typically, you know, like, like that 1.8 grams per kg up to – uh you know three slightly over three grams per kg um, I don't see a whole heck of a lot of differences mm-hmm. um, and with the people who let me experiment and, uh, and 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 play around, some people feel better though, and I think there is something to that, and there's you know evidence behind that like Andrea will talk about how she feels better on a higher protein diet, and mm-hmm. she has some physiological reasons that would probably underpin that saying. yeah yeah um, and I've certainly seen that with other people too. Um, uh, I've I have seen I think guys who are older feeling better on higher protein uh, diets and but that that may be a consequence of therefore their carbohydrates might be a little lower kind of thing um, so yeah it's it's tough to, to really pin down which macronutrient's doing what because when you change one it changes another you know mm-hmm. um, but yeah no I, I, there there's certainly evidence and I've experienced it anecdotally uh, with my clients that there's a big range of individual response out there. Uh, with, with with protein intake and um, I'm I, so a lot of it is psychological and, and behavioral, but I think there's a fair amount of physiology at play there too, uh, with with age, and um, and certain other aspects of someone's body and uh, clinical condition that can affect that. For sure,
0: and, and I guess that makes sense because the studies generally report well. They report the averages, so there's always people at either end of the scale who kind of fall off that bell curve. And but yeah, I agree. I find having the higher protein, there's just something about it. As a bodybuilder, it just feels better to have that, and I definitely feel fuller off it at least. So that helps mm. adherence. So yep. yeah, I don't near I don't nearly see people, especially people who are lighter, who probably don't even need as much necessarily. They tend to want to have kind of. Near the high end of the scale, even though they don't necessarily need it as such.
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh, that—that's the thing. Yeah, we're never—we shouldn't be after what we need. We should be after what's optimal. It's just one of those things that I think to put it in perspective. I think protein doesn't make that huge of a difference in the grand scheme of things, you know. Um, especially when we start to quibble over moderate versus high intakes, mm-hmm. um, you have to go really high before you start to cause issues with other other nutrients, and it's typically only only in a deficit where that's going to happen. Uh, or it starts to cause problems where you just can't gain weight because you're so full all the time, um, and your your TEF is actually high to the point where it actually make it harder to to, to gain weight. Um, if you look at some of Jose Antonio's work, I'd say it's pretty indicative of, of that happening right there. You know, when you're up up around the, the four grams per kg mark, uh, or two grams per pound for the Americans listening, I mean that's that's a lot of protein. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's me consuming over 400 grams of protein a day. And that is hard to do practically, and very filling. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's it's it's. I think it's filling to the point of potential detriment if you're someone who struggles to gain weight. Um, and in a diet, you just can't do that because you wouldn't have anything to fuel your training, uh, and you wouldn't have enough fat or carbohydrate in your diet. And um, I, I don't think the, I don't I don't I don't think it would be a useful strategy dieting to, to prevent yourself from from being hungry, um, I think it would actually cause more problems if you were to try to go that high. So yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of uh, math problem when, when, you, when you play with it. And for the most part, that's why I like to go with you know, personal preference within the range of that kind of 1.8 yeah. to 2.8 grams per kg for the most part.
0: That makes sense. Um, and then I wanted to talk about a little bit more because I know your perspective on refeeds has slightly changed. Mm. and they're become it's becoming more of a kind of maybe a psychological benefit more so than the physiological one i know it kind of replenishes glycogen stores which should help for better training which would lead to better muscle retention and things like that have you ever had experiences where you find the refeed actually causes detriment maybe this person gets into a good groove of their diet and so that the refeed actually disrupts it and they end up being like "Ah, oh, i'm just now like I don't feel good and I find adherence harder, do you always use kind of the same approach? Well, you never will always use the same approach, I know that, that question is a silly one, but do you have mm. kind of experience where people are really different, do you have people who really can't do the refeeds?
1: Yeah, and it's it's typically because of the way they look at the refeeds. People who look at it as I have targets and they're different on my day that's refeed. it's 100 extra grams of carbs or 150 extra grams of carbs. Uh, do fine, and uh, it's it's almost always a net positive um, for people who are they see the refeed as a free day or a cheat day or as um, I don't need to weigh or track or all the rules that that you know we have established as, as the way to follow the diet are out the window on that day. It ends up turning into you know a binge and. Uh, those are times, yeah. With those people, and th- that that is a greater coaching issue. Then the issue is not just should I give them the refeed or not, but oh wow, I mean, what do you think is going to happen when the diet's over? Yeah. So that's something you got to start working on behaviorally at that point immediately. So certainly, the people who um, psychologically don't have the right perspective on a refeed, um, you would take it out while you work on that and get them to try to think differently about things, um, and you know, kind of ask questions and dig deeper and. Uh, it potentially even get intervention from a, uh, you know, even sort specialist if if every time a refeed occurs, it turns into a binge. You know, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I, you know, the the saying, uh, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Um, I really don't think we have adequate information on the type of refeeds we do. We've got a lot of short-term studies where you see that energy expenditure, by the ways we can measure it, doesn't increase. You know. And It's like, well, that, I don't really think that's telling us anything. I, I would like to see a you know, two head-to-head six-month diets with the same net deficit uh, but spread out differently in bodybuilders or any, just lean lifters. Uh, maybe even an eight to 12-week diet, that'd be great and, and seeing if um, having refeeds does anything different or even one where there is actually more calories in the, the refeed group um, you know if, if some of the kind of the, the metabolic magic that happens yeah. with you know, gly- glycogen replenishment and then preferential fat loss afterwards, uh, because i've personally have not experienced adding refeeds to client to clients and having it slow down their diet time when we 're talking about uh, twenty four or forty eight hour it 's not like oh, I use a refeed approach, and math says I have to diet for longer yeah. I mean it does, but that 's just not necessarily what happens. I find they retain a faster rate of weight loss throughout. Um, whether that's whooshes and water weight losses that prompt me to make less changes, to prompt them to have less issues, I don't know, But um, mm-hmm. or better, better adherence uh, in yeah. subtle ways. Uh, but regardless, I, I think um, the mechanisms are fun and dandy, but I, th- I would like to see some actual long-term dieting studies. And um, I think for women especially, I think refeeds are important. And I do think there's data to support uh, that, you know, that, that certain refeed structures would actually uh, help them with their health throughout a diet, and and by function of that, um, maintaining a higher TDEE and even potentially lean body mass because of the effects of uh, their hormonal status. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm I'm definitely when, when people go, eh, you know, refeeds are primarily psychologically. I, I normally don't just let that that go because I, I I don't think we're a, I I think it's a premature conclusion to make um, to say that. Uh, especially when, when the primary mode of evidence we have is anecdotal in yeah. terms of long-term thing. And anecdotally, I've seen some amazing stuff with refeeds. Um, so not – well, I'm probably, probably overstating it. I've seen refeeds play a very important part of improving the results of someone's contest prep uh, compared to not having them. So I, I'm, I'm not necessarily willing to, uh, to concede that they don't do anything without the evidence to back that and just an, an absence of evidence to say that they do, yeah. if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And I guess I, I that's actually a really good point that you made in terms of the, it clearing kind of the water weight in a sense, because your cortisol levels come down. And if people are really stressed out, I mean, I've actually seen, I've had clients where we had had refeeds and they're like, they haven't lost weight for the week and they want to drop the refeed. I'm like, no, that refeed's probably the one thing that's going to allow us to then drop that cortisol and we'll see positive things come out of it. And actually the yeah. same thing kind of happens a lot of the time with diet breaks, which is kind of a week-long maybe refeeding period people gain weight initially but then it drops kind of all off which is a really nice and like you explained really well is there's a lot of things interacting within the human body and it's really hard to definitely know what's going on um so i think yeah you have to that's why kind of having the online coaching and kind of all the data there and you can talk to the person and look at all the data you can kind of kind of manipulate things to your own advantage there and also on touching for the female perspective which i found really interesting i have a female client at the moment actually who she's small and has always struggled to lose fat and I, when we she initially came to me we kind of built calories up and she just seemingly wouldn't gain weight like you'd give her more calories and we s- tracked her steps as well her steps would go up she was just kind of absorbing it all but then whenever she'd cut down in the past like she just said she just stalled out so we put in refeeds regularly and just that seems to have kind of t- kind of ticking her along and i know some people can kind of be hyper responders to calories coming up and some people are sloths and they just kind of when they get a deficit they just kind of they just want to chill out and their body doesn't want to change
1: yeah very much so like the um there was a recent uh, review paper that came out looking at uh the dynamics of, um, what determines our total energy expenditure and how it's modified by exercise and diet, and the conclusion in it was that you know overfeeding doesn't produce increases in energy expenditure. But I I, I think if you look at a, the broadest sense of the literature, what we know is it's extremely variable, mm-hmm. uh, and you know and this makes sense. Like it, we're we're a survival of the fittest. You know we have to be able to survive to pass on our genes to at least you know sexual maturity, right, and um, to make it through ice ages and you know food scarcity. Um, it makes a lot of sense that preserving energy expenditure, or rather uh, reducing energy expenditure in the face of not having food, is something that most people would have as an aspect of their physiology. However, the other way around, not so much. You know, um, that's not something that w- w- would necessarily help you pass on your genes. So it does seem to be that there are definite some people who you overfeed, and like you said, their steps go up uh, by by some mechanism. Uh, they are expending more energy, probably through neat. Um, and, uh, you know, potentially through exercise as well, that kind of that type of thing. And other people, just doesn't happen, you know. Um, so, yeah, and I think that's something we've seen and puzzled over as coaches of why some people I can just keep feeding and feeding and feeding them, and then, you know, it seems like you can do kind of metabolic building, quote, unquote. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, how quickly does it drop off, or what can I do to maintain it? Can I use more refeeds, diet breaks, et cetera? Um, and, yeah, so some people respond much better to that, and I think that probably colors uh, some of my perception on refeeds, because I'm someone who responds very well to refeeds and diet breaks, mm-hmm. um, and building calories that type of thing. Um, but you know, I've definitely worked with people who just doesn't seem to have much of an impact, and it's a much more minor, you know, aspect of the diet. But it still does have benefits for, you know, filling them out. You know, you can get a better idea of what the peak week is going to be like. Yeah. Psychological break, it potentially just lean body mass retention. You know, mm-hmm. if you think about it. So, um, yeah, the. The potential for benefit is individual for sure. I would agree with that, yeah. And like you said, women, I think it makes a lot of sense to play with them doing it because a good marker of how well you did with a female competitor, if they're a normally cycling person who's not using uh, birth control, is how long do they keep their menstrual cycle? You know, if you can stave off amenorrhea for longer. Uh, that is probably an indication that they are having overall better hormonal health, metabolic health along the way, that's for sure. Mm
0: -hmm. And I guess just from a female perspective, the fact that they are, I mean, La McDonald's always talking about it in terms of how it is just so hard for females to lose fat in that they're going to have that more dramatic response potentially just from that understanding. And so they would, just from that general theoretical point, do better from being refed because it's kind of like, oh, okay, we don't need to starve now. We can kind of use some of this energy.
1: Yeah, that's that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, um, women on average uh, tend to come with more psychological baggage because I think our society it it doesn't give as many messages to men, at least in Western culture, as it does to women about what the way they should look. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you like another aspect of that nutrition. Paper we wrote on bodybuilding is there's a lot more women who come to the sport with a history or a background uh, body image and eating disorder, uh, and men uh, not as much, but certainly more than other sports for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of the times when you're working with female competitors, uh, not always, uh, but you have to unpack some of that, and there are you know feelings associated with uh, when can I cut calories? What does it mean to do so? Increase in calories. Uh, and you have to overcome a lot of fear uh, or uh, even sometimes neuroses uh, that, that, that come along with that type of thing. And it, it does change the game substantially. Um, and a refeed having positive effects is a really good thing for a, for a woman who struggles with that or anyone who struggles with that to see, oh, wow, I ate 1,000 calories more you know, than, than my lowest day of the week today. And I only had positive effects from it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that's a good thing. And you can start to work against some of those uh, those f- kind of fear-based behaviors and decisions that they've been struggling with.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I certainly had that with the female actually I was talking about before. We had a diet break and she hadn't really been looking at the scale, but measuring it and reporting it to me. And then she looked at me and she was like, wow, how have I stayed the same weight when I've eat, like, increased my eating by so much? It just amazed her, which yeah, it, it takes a, a while for people to trust the scale. It completely does. And for females who have those kind of views and they have it ingrained from media. So, uh, yeah, definitely. So, actually, let's get on to the training stuff because it sounded like you had some stuff to say on here as well, which I'm really interested to hear about. What elements of the training aspects would you have changed or may potentially just
1: tweak? Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff with training, man. Like, um, I very lightly touched on auto-regulation and training review. I mean, like, super lightly, and that's just because I – didn't feel like there was enough research out there and now that I've really dug into that for my PhD, um, I feel like I could provide much more concrete uh, guidelines with regards of how to use RPE, uh, what you need to do before you're ready to use it um, and and how that can be implemented into a plan and and why it's worth it. You know, the issues with um, testing and percentage-based, you know, like do do you really want to have your bodybuilder having to test a, you know, two to five RM to get an accurate max on a, you know, by bi- bi- monthly basis, or rather every, every two months or so, um, and I think that's that's fine. Uh, it, it, but it does have to be worked in. It makes things more complex, and there are ways around that if you can get someone who is pretty accurate with gauging how far they are from failure, uh, which we've got a fair amount of research on that suggests we can. And a new mm-hmm. study just came out uh, by Hackett, who did the original estimated repetitions to failure paper in two thousand twelve. You know, and this is all based on Mike Toucher's stuff back from 2008. Uh, But yeah, the first instance in in the literature where people were looking at can we gauge how far we are from failure was on bodybuilders in 2012 uh, by Hackett and colleagues, Um, and, you know, finding that it's actually more accurate than traditional RPE for resistance training. And now, most recently, 2016, they're finding that just in general, trained people are pretty accurate, and it depends on how far they get. Like in that zero to three reps from failure, people are pretty good. So mm-hmm. that's the basically the seven to ten RPE range, which is where we're going to be working most of the time anyway for a bodybuilder. Um, maybe some sixes in there as well. Um, so it's the kind of thing where now you can go, okay, we're pretty confident in accuracy. And from what we've seen, um, novices versus experienced are, are not quite as good. So, okay, if we can... Get you some familiarity with the scale. You know, we maybe use traditional program first, and have you recording RPEs as just kind of using it, looking at video of yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, getting feedback from an experienced training partner to what they think, and then you start to really kind of ingrain. Uh, okay, I'm going to remove my ego from this, and really, how far from failure am I truly? You can even do some AMRAPs to test it. You know. Um, you know plus sets, that kind of thing. So you get a better feel of where failure is, mm-hmm. which is why I think bodybuilders are pretty good at it. That 2012 study is that they, they tend to train to failure more often than other athletic groups, um, and uh, and then okay, once I've established that, now we can get a prescription of load, maybe by percentage. But then let's say, you know, for example, 85% of one RM is supposed to be, say, your five or six rep max, right? Mm-hmm. And granted, if you've gotten stronger, depending on how your rate of progress from when you tested it last. It may or may not be. You know that's why you see studies sometimes where it's like people did six reps with their ninety percent of one RM. It's like, <laughs> and then it wasn't ninety percent. It's like, no, they got stronger. You know, and that that is kind of the issue. One of the issues with percentage one RM based training is you can have a bad testing session. Uh, you can not predict accurately how quickly someone's going to uh, progress. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- then that's the main thing I've seen in my studies is that when using a percentage based program versus an RPE based program you may ask some people to be progressing too fast or too slow. So instead of just saying do 3x5 at 85% on 1RM, uh, if you say start with 85% of 1RM, we have three sets, and we're supposed to fall between a 7 and 9 RPE. Yeah. All right? If you hit a 6 or a 6.5 or a 9.5 or a 10, here's the way you adjust your load. You know, So for example, every half point above the RPE range, you drop the load by 2% on the next set. Every half point below, you increase it by 2%. That kind of thing. Um, and that's an objective way to get you towards the stress per set that we're trying to get in that phase yeah. of periodization. Which is, I think, really critical in contest prep when, as you know, your strength is a lot more variable than it is at other times. You know, um, Yeah, other, other things I, I think I would emphasize would be that interaction between you know frequency and volume. Now that there's been a little more research on that, mm-hmm. uh, and you know when when is there the point where extra frequency probably isn't going to help, and 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 why is that? And I think we've got enough evidence now to suggest that basically the more volume at a higher intensity you're trying to do, the more rationale for splitting it up over more sessions there is. Um, and instead of just kind of giving prescriptive values like you should train two to three times per week, because because I'm the tenth commandment bodybuilding guy. No, uh, it's more of okay, you know. It, as you find your volume is needing to go higher in the off season, and your intensity is, uh, you know, you're pushing it. For example, you may benefit from spreading that out over more days to help, you know, with extra sleep cycles and meals between and time just to recover. Um, and other ways of breaking up your training to reduce uh, you know, things like delayed onset muscle soreness before you have a big training day. Uh, you know, basically, fatigue management for the most part is, is something that I think I would probably change the wording and emphasize a little more as what frequency is beneficial for. Because I think a lot of people just think of high frequency training equals good because, yeah. because MPS, right? And that's just such a limited way of looking at it when you're, juggle, you're juggling fatigue, muscle soreness. Um, you know joint strains, things like that, and and depending on the movement you're doing, uh, you know, in force force production being being uh, compromised for a period of time, and then trying to figure out how to juggle all that. That's when I think frequency is your biggest tool to, uh, you know, manage your, your stress levels in training. And then a bigger picture uh, would be actual you know periodized approaches, which unfortunately there's so little on um, periodization for hypertrophy. You know, and it may not even be really necessary in the same way it is for strength training. Mm-hmm. It may just be a matter of setting up an appropriate rate of progression and an appropriate frequency and appropriate, you know, and then that's it. You know, um, but I, I, I do think, but if there is a benefit for hypertrophy of overreaching and tapering, uh, which I don't think we've a- adequately uh, assessed, or if there's a benefit of doing some of the same things that tends to increase strength over time. Um, then I think there 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 might be a rationale for it, but um, we're just not at a point really where we have a lot of longitudinal studies that are focused on maximizing hypertrophy to mm-hmm. make statements about uh, periodization. You know, we know a lot about six to sixteen week training studies. You know, yeah. which unfortunately is um, a small part of an overall plan. And in the practical world, where you're writing, you know, blocks of training that sometimes last twelve weeks. Uh, and and you're working with someone for a period of a whole prep or a year and a half long off season, you know. Um, so I think that's where most of the changes in training would occur would be kind of the set some of that nuanced uh, aspects of of, uh, of how to you know include things and and regulate them. So yeah,
0: yeah, I think the the auto regulation aspect that's come out kind of the last few years has been an absolute wow. Well, it's, a, it's an absolute game changer in terms of how helping people program more appropriately I think is co- probably a good way of saying it and I've definitely found in my own programming for clients it's allow people to progress at their own sort of ability and rate because I might have them down as maybe an intermediate or a novice but if I actually just allow them to use an RPE and they can use it effectively they can kind of go at their own speed um, which is really a great thing because it allows people to go better and i guess you can and like you said using the combination is really nice because you could always give them kind of a a weight and a rep and then let them rate it so you can then see if they're rating it lowly and you're like right we can actually build this faster and i guess those are that's like the step stone approach and you think you took it through in the shredded by science seminar as well the step kind of wise approach of integrating rpe style training auto regulation i guess it's, it's similar to like when you start, first start tracking macros you have to be really kind of precise and then you kind of allow yourself to do a meal plan you switch meal plans and then you kind of get free balling uh, and it becomes really effective the only thing i think i don't know if i i didn't use a lot of rpe training when i was in my contest prep by know times at which i felt so 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 tired and i don't know if i'd ever have used it as an excuse to be like right yeah that felt like an rp9 i'm leaving it there like and i probably hit like maybe an rp7 i and i think that that coinciding with also videoing is really important because i think people don't always perceive it accurately
1: yeah i'm i'm uh well i just talked about this in the podcast on uh, we had on 3dmj with mike zerdos but uh i i was sharing how i like to have Video, even even for me, sometimes, so I can get the my RPE versus that person, so we can talk about the discrepancy. And you're right, things feel friggin' hard during certain aspects of contest prep. And I I have seen and I have experienced people who start rating their RPEs really high, and then when they send me the video, I'm kind of like, dude, you know, (laughs) Um, like I mean, I'm not not too judgmental because I get it. I've been there. I, I know what it's like to feel like walking to the squat rack is hard. And then you're supposed to unrack 80% of your 1RM and do reps with it? Like, okay. you know. So um, so no, I, I think uh, you, it's, it's the reason why the RPE scale that Zerdos and I have introduced to the literature, uh, along with his colleagues in his lab, um, are, it does a little bit better than the Borg RPE scale for resistance training is because it's a more objective scale. It's mm-hmm. got very specific criteria for what it means. But it's an objective scale that is rated subjectively. Right, so anything you can do to make you as the subjective rater more accurate is probably a good idea. Mm -hmm. So things like um, velocity, velocity measurements to go alongside of it, Um, things like video, things like a coach are all very useful things to have, Um, and uh, and yeah, so I I think that that is pretty important. and yeah, so I, I definitely recommend if you're going through prep and you want to use RPEs to help regulate your load I, I would look at video because um, then you can start to see oh, that wasn't actually as slow as it felt like it should have been because it's so damn heavy you know um, so yeah there, there there are it's it is more complex and you, do, you had a great analogy there where just like you don't go oh you've never learned anything about nutrition sweet here are your macros um, you, you don't go oh you know very little about training except you used to do you know chest back, shoulders arms legs and then two days off and every Three sets per exercise that was in the in the gym to failure, you know, mm-hmm. in the eight to twelve range, you know, like that is um, taking them from that to a you know vastly different kind of full body four days per week RPE based program, uh, which might be what you think is optimal on paper, but is actually completely outside of their experience. would yeah. doesn't go, doesn't go well, you know. Um, so yeah, you have to use a stepwise fashion to get someone towards. Uh, where you want them to go so they understand the process, buy into it, see the pieces and can ask questions and and moderate it at their own kind of emotional pace to accept big changes the way they've thought things are supposed to be done.
0: Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, the whole point behind the auto-regulation aspect is people want to provide enough stress on that specific day. So if they can't actually judge that, it's almost pointless for them to be doing it. Or even detrimental. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I would say there are you know there are probably some people who would do better with percentage one RM if they really can't disconnect their ego, or if they're just shitty at rating RPEs, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's that's one of those things. Uh, research is tough; it always pits one against the other, uh, and it's difficult to set up research designs where you're looking at an individual response. You have to do like what's called a crossover, and crossovers are are hard, man. Because if you see someone did a like, for example, in my master's, the two week crossover, right? Ah, oh, two week study, right? No. So it's two weeks and then a washout period to where they're not in a deficit of at least twice the length of the, of the, the two-week period. So it's two weeks, four weeks, and then two weeks again to do the other one. And you have to randomize people to go, so I half to make my guys start on the moderate protein, half of them start on the high protein, and then they wash out and start again. And then you have to retain them during this washout period where you're not modifying their life. Uh, which is difficult. You know, mm-hmm. I had to basically go. all right, it's a minimum of four weeks, but if you can wash out longer, that's fine. You know, i so had some people who I'm chasing up after two months to come back and be like, wow. Hey, can I please starve? Can I starve you again? You know, <laughs> um, and then trying to retain enough numbers to where you you can still do the study. So you know, a, a two-week study becomes an eight-week study. That kind of thing is it's it's quite difficult. So um, getting individual responses is difficult, and then. Okay, so I'm going to do a parallel groups, combina- you know, study where I get two groups of ten, and maybe that's easier than getting one group of ten. Or oh, I can have them go through it twice, just depending on what kind of subject pool you're working with. But then you have this um, this impression that it's either A or B, you know. So the study that I'm working, that I finished in Florida with 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 uh, Dr. Cerdos, um was an eight week study on an RPE program versus a percentage one arm based program. Everything else the same, and you know, I'm still running stats and analyzing it. I'm not sure which one's going to come out on top. But if one does come out on top, people are going to take it as this is the end-all, be-all. Versus, well, would it be even better to yeah. have, you know, RPE? Like, what, what if we start with the percentage to get you in the ballpark, and then RPE modifies it? That's what I do in my practice. Mm-hmm. You know, try to get the best of both worlds to help the person be a little more objective about their their attempt selections. You know, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's a tough one. But I I think. Um, yeah, I think a coach probably will have better tools than a scientist for discerning which individual person will be better suited for RPE, and the person knows too. Yeah, you know, once they start failing on RPE eight sets, you go, okay, you know, <laughs> we need to pull back here uh, and try different, something else. So it's it's an it's a, a tool you can easily learn that is it may or may not be appropriate. And I
0: think you pulled pulled out a nice point there as well about how hard some of this research is. And I know sometimes, I think even recently, Brad Schoenfeld was, people were like having a go and saying this research is already telling us what we already know. And it, it's not really, it's just confirming things that we've thought about before. And mm. in bodybuilding, especially, there's so many old school things that were done and some of them are coming out to be relatively handy or useful or even correct. And it is useful as... A coach and someone in the field to look at kind of what people have done, what people have done well, why it's been well and kind of match it up with the science because experience and anecdote are powerful because you can't test for everything and we're only just the stuff that you're doing with Mike and the stuff that Brad's doing now is just amazing and it's helping us advance massively but we're still going to be a bit behind the coaches potentially.
1: Yeah and you have to ask the same question different ways multiple times because uh, you know I, I saw that critique, and it, it bugged me because people were like, "Oh, we already knew that you know volume is the determinant, so three by three is less than three by ten and Well, I was like, well actually, there's just been a recent debate you know about is it the number of hard sets yeah. and is it, you know because you 'd think you know slower lifting movement with heavier weights, higher weight, you know lighter weight, earlier motor unit recruitment you 'd think that maybe a set of five would be equivalent to a set of ten, maybe mm-hmm. i i don 't know if I buy that." Um, And I would say this study tells us that at least, you know, heavy sets of two to four are not equivalent to heavy sets of eight to twelve in terms of uh, the hypertrophic stimulus, you know. And it may be something like total impulse per set, you know, which is the area under the force curve uh, within limits, because obviously uh, something is going to come into play with uh, motor unit recruitment with very high high loads and low loads and stuff like that. So we're still teasing that stuff out, you know. Another example, and uh, shout out to Ian McCarthy as he was uh, proposing the question about is there any point to lifting heavy for bodybuilders? Okay. And, and I would say that that's a good question. You mm-hmm. know, I, I previously would have said, hey, um, you know, if, if you gain strength faster with, with heavy loads, uh, that will down the line help hypertrophy uh, and perhaps uh, it gets motor units recruited at a more efficient manner than, than moderate loads. And uh, those things, we actually those are that's speculation, really. Mm-hmm. When you really look at it, um, we don't have a great way to actually look at motor unit recruitment. We know EMG amplitude, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the motor units are are, are recruited or there's less or more. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's a lot of debate about that, you know. Um, and there's a lot of practical evidence to show that at least in these six to sixteen week studies and moderately trained individuals that. Uh, whether you're doing sets of 25 or sets of 8, um, you know, you're probably going to get a, a similar response. But, um, you know, and that volume probably is a large component. So we, we we actually just don't know the answer to a lot of these things. So I think, um, I think people who poo-poo research, uh, even when it's, you know, answering the same question again, are missing the point of we're trying to get to having a meta-analysis on everything, mm-hmm. you know. And then tease out the mechanisms so that we can understand what we're actually programming for. So I think, um, no, there's nothing wrong with doing studies that have already been done, especially when they find different results. Because then you're like, well, shit, you know, what does that mean, you know? Um, A big thing that I've shifted from as a practitioner and as a presenter when I educate other people is, if possible, I start with a meta-analysis, you know? Um, when I talk about programming, I normally lean on six or seven meta-analyses versus like 30 studies because mm-hmm. you can find studies that um, seemingly contradict one another. Often they're, they're subtly different and that that's actually, the difference is very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there's this study by M- Mangine, uh where they found sets of five actually beat out sets of eight to twelve. Then you look at the rest periods and you realize they're going to failure, and you start to realize that, oh wow the, the load was actually going to have to drop a lot in all those eight to twelve sets uh, while I think if I remember correctly the the heavy load group had longer rest periods they're able to maintain these sets of five at a high load you know where if you're doing you know a set of twelve to failure you're going to have to drop the load substantially mm-hmm. you know, and you might end up be working in the fifty percent of of one rm to to failure in an eight to twelve rep range, and then are you actually Getting enough time stimulating that muscle before it just can't contract anymore because the acidic environment and mm-hmm. it can't buffer to get a stimulus, you know, or are you just getting better muscular endurance, you know. So, um, and people would go, "Oh, well, that's that's contrary findings to Schoenfelds." So I'm like, "No, actually, Schoenfeld did a different study, you know." Mm-hmm. So, what is different that resulted in that? I think that's that's where. Uh, that's where I think people are, are missing the mark a little bit is that one study can't answer the question and we need to get towards having more data.
0: Mm-hmm. And I guess that's why when we talked about modifications in terms of like supplementation, that's why citrullum malate is now being potentially included because there's more studies now being on it because there weren't very many so you couldn't really back it before.
1: There was one and it was a study that where they did uh, sets of failure on bench press with a one minute rest period and it's kind of like, well... Of course, uh, you know, it would help, like you're training like a dumbass. Like, so, um, why, I wouldn't have someone do like f- f- multiple sets in, in, with only a minute rest period. That we, that we already know that is inferior for hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. So, it can make a mistake not as bad. Like, that, that was basically what we knew about citrullium malate before. Yeah. But now, we've got studies with two and three minute rest periods and people going to failure on, I think on like chin-ups and, uh, and even in lower body exercises where uh, you, got, you get more volume um out of the uh out of the citrulline malate group so I, I think um i think now there's a yeah exactly there's much more stronger evidence in that, and that and that made me change my recommendations mm-hmm. uh so and that's the way it should be
0: that's yeah well. you use the science to then guide the practice i guess and, and with all of this that we've talked about uh so actually i want to come up with i've got two questions that i think would be really good for, well, that I'm really interested in that I want to ask. And the first one is related to contest prep and everything. What Mm. have you found has been the biggest barrier to either yourself or your clients in general to getting to content like conditioned leanness? What's the, what do most people go through that you find that they have to, is there a common thing that they have to get through? Is there, or is there just loads of different experiences?
1: Um, There are some common things. I think psychologically uh, being able to get through that phase where you feel like you 've gotten smaller and it 's not worth getting on stage, you know you go through this period where you 're like seven or eight percent body fat for males where you 're not quite shredded yeah. but you 're flat but you 're digging you so say you 're flat you 're stressed, you are not quite sane um you don 't look your best and you 're not diced yet. To where it's like, you know what, is it even worth pushing another eight weeks to get shredded when I know that I'm going to look like shit on stage? Mm-hmm. That's what's going on in your brain. It's not true. And I can't tell you how many times the coach, I'm like, okay, stop looking in the mirror and stop thinking. You need to just <laughs> be, be a robot for two months for me and I promise you're going to look good. You know, um, that, that is a big one for guys especially. Um, you know, for, for women, they more often will hit true stalls. And have trouble, you know, getting getting leaner, and if there's a high cost to it. And actually, just getting shredded can be a problem because it might require a very long time of dieting. Yeah, you know, it's it's actually a big ask to for a woman who starts in reasonably good condition in the off season to get shredded in six months on average. You know, and I just think that's that's even with a, a, a flexible optimal quote unquote you know evidence based diet, you know, dieting for eight months is, is uh, stressful. You mm-hmm. know. Um, and I found, you know, to kind of sideways answer the next question is what's the biggest thing to, to help with these, these two issues that I see? Um, diet breaks, longer yeah. diets, and, um, you know, 48 hour refeeds have been the things that I've implemented and we've implemented as 3DMJ in the last couple of years that have been uh, game changers and make that process better. And I think from a coach's perspective, uh, getting someone a year plus before their comp so you can make sure they're set up in the offseason. They have the skills and the tools they need, like we talked about with you. Wouldn't just throw someone new to yeah. nutrition and macros, and then you can game plan out a six, seven, eight, five month, whatever's appropriate length diet for the person, uh, with, including diet breaks and thinking about refeed schedules and rate of weight loss, so that you can not be playing catch up mm-hmm. and get them there early, and then start feeding them up into the diet, so they're not limping across uh, the, the finish line. Is is what really has been the the answer to those issues, but th- those issues are always going to be there. There's no way around it. Uh, and then just adherence, mm-hmm. you know. Th- there's it's funny. There's um, generally two types of bodybuilders. There's the bodybuilders who think they are more hardcore and never cheat on their diet, and they're actually just arrogant. And then have worse times in the off season, like uh, me. So, <laughs> or I used to at least. You know, we like you'd you'd never cheat on your diet. That's not an option. But you do other dumb things, right? Yeah. Like you. Train too hard, do too much cardio, cut your calories too low, and then absolutely go f- lose your shit in the off season because you you set up that pendulum to swing back so hard. Yeah. Or those the people who do, um, you know, result, you know the stress caused them to overeat or miss out on their diet or skip cardio sessions or. Skip a day in the gym, and I don't think one's better than the other because at least one person they don't let the stress keep mounting and mounting and digging that hole deeper. Um, But it it does express itself, and so long as they're honest, that's not a big deal. The problem is the person who skips out of their diet, hates themselves, and is not honest with their coach, and then you're scratching your head. So you know they're 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 both very common, believe it or not. Uh, Most bodybuilders want to be the person who never cheats, but like I said, it's just it it has its own host of problems. The stress comes out somewhere else. so yeah, I, I think uh, in both cases these can be very, very useful tools. Like, and, and the person who slips up in response to stress, they slip up less. You know, and they have a better ability to manage their stress, they don't have to diet as long. Uh, and for the person who is just ready to crush it and you know, works too hard, you're always just basically holding them back a little bit you know, and, uh, and, and not letting them uh, you know, make it harder on themselves because they're working too hard mm-hmm. and trying to inappropriately you know, bowl, bowl over every obstacle the hashtag dominate everything you know guys you have to outwork. Kind of hold back yeah dominate outwork, you know all the uh all those cliches I, I i speak from that experience yeah. so yeah
0: i um i can relate to the sticking to the diet no matter what and my stress didn't come out with food probably but it, it definitely i know i know it came out in other ways and mm. it just builds up and it's not great at all it's yeah, but I, I don't I don't think there's a way of dealing with it really apart from like you said with the longer period of time you can have more diet breaks you have more refeeds and these things people kind of under, I think people underestimate how helpful they really are because they make a world of difference just if you can plan like a diet break during your your birthday or girlfriend's birthday for that week mm-hmm. it make a big difference to stress.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it might even keep you in. Like you said, when we first started talking, you were like, "I don't think I'd still be in the sport if I hadn't come across my information." Right. Yeah, that's that's one thing. Is you, let's say you can just tough it out and not do any that shit and just crash diet yourself and you know just through sheer will not lose muscle and look good on stage. How long can you do that? I know some pretty hardcore bodybuilders with great willpower who've done that for five, six, seven seasons. You know, mm. they don't they don't typically make it to year ten. That's you know, so they 10. always. Yeah, they always find some. If they stay in the sport, they find some level of balance and sustainability. Yeah. Um, or they're very genetically gifted, so that even, you know, they, they, they don't lose a lot of muscle. Losing fat's easy. They start relatively lean. So they can crush themselves for, you know, 20 weeks and it's not a big deal and compete at even a very high level on the pro stage. Uh, but if you're not someone with those gifts, you know, and that mentality, then you need to find a different way unless you want to burn out pretty quick. So.
0: Cool. So actually on a related second question, and this is the last question I'll probably have unless we get onto something else, is you talked about for the males particularly the hardest point being at that kind of the 8% point where they're flat, they don't look particularly big, they're not ripped enough. Do you ever have people who lose a lot of muscle to to get to that last, to get to that shredded condition? Because I think it was Peter Fission who lost... A ludicrous, like, it looked like a crazy amount, not looked like, I didn't actually compare the photos, but on paper, it sounded like a lot of muscle loss, and that kind of scared me a bit.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. We have um, a handful of case studies now on drug-free natural bodybuilders, uh, at the, even at the pro level, they've gone through things, and for those who don't know, you know, Chris Foss was the original, um, who, you look at that's like, that's awesome, you know, he dieted for six months, so he only lost like... He got down to like five percent or four percent body fat, and he only lost, yeah, a couple of kilos of, of lean body mass. You know, it's probably intestinal mass and a little bit of bone tissue. You know, mm-hmm. no big deal, right? Uh, and so, and then um, Pete's comes out, and he's something like like twenty yeah. percent. You know, um, which actually is not bad. It's just that I think he's probably on the higher end of of kind of the normal one standard deviation out kind mm-hmm. of thing. But more importantly, you look at his pictures, he looks fantastic. Yeah. You know, He doesn't look like he lost uh, slews and slews of muscle mass. And I think that helps us realize that probably the norm uh, is that in that digging phase, you lose a fair bit. Yeah. Uh, so um, yeah, I mean, so I, 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 it's very common. And there are some people who you struggle to not see a very visible loss of lean body mass towards the end or just this... Uh, what I think is then just flattening out so bad that you just can't get it back in time for the stage. Because I've definitely seen some people who I thought were people who'd lose a lot of muscle on that stage. And then if you get them ready early and give them a month coming into the show, they kind of get that aliveness back. Maybe it is yeah. regaining muscle tissue. You know, mm-hmm. for all I know, they just needed the calories to do it. Um, but I think it's probably a combination of that and being able to get their glycogen stores to some kind of reasonable level. Um, and, you know, your ability to store glycogen gets, gets worse the longer you diet and the more you restrict carbs. You know, the actual... Enzymes which oh, yeah. synthesise glycogen and your 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 storage. It's like the analogy I like to use is if uh, it's not just like having a half full gas gas tank. It's like you have a gas tank that literally expands based on the amount of gas you put it in to some degree. So if you've I'm saying gas for all the Americans, I should say petrol for all your listeners. So if you've you've got you know a, a, a tank that's only had half the amount of petrol it's used to, it shrinks a little bit, and then you just can't quite get full enough unless. Uh, it starts to adapt to having a higher level of petrol in it, you know. So that's that's another you know aspect of that. But definitely, that is something you see, and um, yeah, it's good to be a little scared of contest pro, I think, <laughs> you know, I think um, I spend so much time talking about optimal approaches and flexible dieting, and how you know sometimes we set up these uh, these these unfortunate dichotomies of, of you know bro and crash diets versus flexible diets, and they're so much better. But if people take away from that, oh, if I, you know, take a flexible approach, it's going to be easy. Mm-hmm. They're missing the point because bodybuilding, if bodybuilding could be easy, we wouldn't study it this much yeah. and try to figure out the best way to do it. It's um, so damn hard that there are, you know, entire companies uh, like Revive Stronger and 3DMJ that are trying to work towards making it more sustainable because it's not, mm-hmm. you know, and no matter how well you do it, it's still a one of the hardest things to do that you can do.
0: And I guess on a less, uh, well, not a, a less negative note, more positive note, in that you are saying how you some people build that muscle back up after the contest prep. Generally, do you see
1: this? You see the muscle come back. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That that's very true. Yeah. It's a temporary loss, and um, and you know that that that's kind of key. Is so if you are someone who loses a shit ton of muscle when you diet, it just seems like nothing you do can get around it. So get ready two months early, you know, yeah. and then slowly feed up into the show, and you'll probably find you have a much better outcome. Um, I, I am—I I, have—I have found that myself. My uh, 2009 season, I was able to eat up into my last show for to, to my to my benefit, even only for like three weeks, but it made a big difference. Uh, and then 2011, I got in shape like a couple weeks before I did my shows, and I was quite a bit lighter in 2011 versus 2009. Um, but, uh, so yeah, and uh so it's it's one of those things where the such thing is peaking early, you know, yeah, so, yeah,
0: and I guess when you say uh building back into the show, you just basically bring are you just eking up calories slightly to maintenance and you're just trying to hold condition, it's kind of like a long extended peak week, I guess,
1: yeah, exactly right, so you're you're trying to reduce the size of the deficit to the point where you're not. Losing any weight, and you if, if you've got a good eye, you can gain weight so long as you can see that there's no negative change to your physique. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I'll use 2009 as an example. I want to say the lowest body weight I hit was like 181. Point something, um, and then the last three weeks I was in like 185. You know, so that's whether it was muscle or not, it's four pounds of fullness. You know, yeah. water, glycogen, uh, you know, food in my gut. And, uh, and 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 at least the visible appearance of having more full muscle. Um, so I, I think uh, that that did make a big difference as cool. far as yeah the way interesting. presented. Mm-hmm. Wow.
0: So I'm going to thank you. I'm going to leave it there and thank you so much for coming on the show. I want to make sure everyone knows where to reach you. I'm going to put all of these links in the comments below. But if there's anywhere you think you particularly want to send people to, I know your website's getting redone because I saw that on Andrea's Snapchat. And, uh, or if you've got anything new coming out you want to kind of present to people, are you updating the muscle and strength pyramid soon? I thought you said you may be doing something there,
1: probably mid next year. So, okay. but I, the, the websites will stay the same. So, we're getting a new 3D Muscle Journey website that is still, you know, www.3dmusclejourney. Uh, the muscle and strength pyramids, we're going to release a second edition sometime mid to, I don't know, third, fourth quarter next year. Cool. Um, that's still muscleandstrengthpyramids.com. And then, you know, our YouTube, my Instagram, whole nine. Awesome. Yeah.
0: Yeah, And Eric's now regular on Instagram, which is really fun because the cool kids like me are on Instagram and we follow (laughs) Eric. So I'll have all these links in the comments below. And I just want to thank Eric again for joining me here.
1: Honor to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: And everyone else. Thank you. And we'll talk to you soon. Cheers, guys.